And what does it what does it say on the screen? Oh shoot, that says Art House Drive-In? Splittooth Media's latest film podcast? Aren't we the the co-hosts of that podcast? Are you Robert? Are you T? Oh snap! Is that is that our faces up in the sky? Uh, looking pretty good, looking pretty good. I guess we'll be coming back here pretty uh, pretty often then, at least every week. At least every week, talking about at least one film or two short films, or I guess we'll be going on a on a journey through the world of our house film. I guess. Yeah, that's pretty. That's gonna be pretty cool. <laughs> Come along, everybody. More room in the drive-in. I don't know how we got here, but I love it. So, mm-hmm. so, did you spill your coffee or something? Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Sorry. That's awesome. I, I just saw your face in the Discord. <laughs> I was just like, uh-oh. <laughs> so I to do it quietly. I was like, I saw you moving something. I was like, oh no, my god. Oh, we, that's perfect. We can cut this out post production. <laughs> or this is the cold open of the episode. Welcome, everybody, to the third installment of the Art House Drive In podcast, the newest podcast from Split Tooth Media. Thanks for uh, joining us. I'm here with my my cherished cousin T. How's it going? And and I'm I'm Robert. And uh, if if this is your first time tuning in, this is the podcast where I'm taking. Uh, my cousin on a walkabout f- through avant-garde and experimental film through the the wonderful world of art house film. Mm-hmm. So uh, come along on this journey with us. As it's, I it's learned, been great so far, uh, basically everything that I can about art house films because uh, already there's not much in this here in this brain here. Hey man, you've been doing great. I think you need to give yourself some credit because when we talked about rules, no, today, no, I was man, very my impressed. brain, my brain is full of rocks. Rocks and, Dude, and wakeboards. Precious gems, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Right. And uh, so today, you know, this is, I, I guess, just our shoot the shit section, but I have been listening to, my, my existence has been a little strange. I've been listening to a lot oh. of Death Grips, and I've been watching a lot of Abbas Kiristami films. So I don't know right, if that's... Right, right. Like, yeah, you sent me some of, some of the Death Grips. Um, that's a wild way to spend your time. <laughs> Between like this very gentle, lovely uh, filmmaker, like this uh, art house filmmaker, and just like rap screamed into an experimental, you know, hip hop beat. So that's my life. How have you been? I've been pretty good. Uh, I've been back in the climbing gym. Uh, unfortunately, not back on the water. Uh, it, oh. It's winter here in Florida, which means uh, <laughs> for everyone who's not used to being up in the north, it's time to break out the sweatshirts and the jackets and uh if you're going into the water you best have a decent wetsuit and i don't my wetsuit is from six years ago i mean i have snow outside so i don't know oh you have snow outside i have ducks (laughs) that's cool and um today's episode so again if you're the first time tuning in each episode is going to be about one feature film or maybe like you know, a longish a short film or maybe a couple really short films. And today yeah. um, we're talking about the rules of the game from mm. director Jean Renoir. 
1939 film. So this is maybe the oldest film you've ever seen, T. It is, without a doubt, the oldest film I've ever seen. It is my very first classic. <laughs> yeah. And for me, why I chose this, I saw this film for the first time and maybe the best circumstances that I could have ever chosen. Um, I saw it in 35mm at the Harvard Film Archive. Ooh, very um, cool maybe five or six years ago, maybe five years ago. And it was just, it was a glorious introduction. I, I'd seen um, Grand Delusion, which is another one of his films before that. But um, it was just incredible. It was me, um, Brett Wright, who's one of the film editor of Split Tooth, and Jason, who's one of the co-hosts of Synesthesia. And I think Jason's dad was there as well, if I remember that correctly. Ooh. And it was just an amazing introduction to this just absolute masterwork. And... Um, so that's that's my background. It it was really the first film I saw, um, or one of the first films I saw, where I was like, I understand why this is canonized. You know what I mean? Like usually I'm not on the side of the canonizers. No, and traditionally, I'm very traditionally yeah, I'm you are always the ones going against it, being like, I can't believe you guys are are fangirling over this movie so hard. Yeah, but this is one of those films where it's just undeniable i think this is like one of the most perfect films mm -hmm. i've ever seen so I, I definitely went into it skeptical just it being such an old movie um i mean if you've listened to some of the other episodes you might know that i didn't realize cameras existed this early <laughs> um i legitimately couldn't tell you when the first movie came out so knowing that one came out in 1939 was a bit of a trip for me uh yeah. so i was kind of thinking i was like all right it's gonna be slow pace like it's going to take a while, um, not a lot of narration probably, uh, but I was pleasantly surprised by this. Uh, I very much enjoyed watching this. It struck me closer to a Shakespearean drama than anything else, and I I liked, I'd say for the most part, all the characters, even maybe the ones I wasn't supposed to like. Yeah, I mean, you have a keen eye, sir. Like, this is... I, I love. I like to introduce this film as like a modern feeling film that is very old. You know what I mean? If people are, I I've I've talked to people in the past who are very scared of like early cinema. They're like, oh, it's going to be boring and uh, melodramatic, and the acting is going to be unrealistic and blah 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But this film feels <laughs> like it could have been made today. Mm -hmm. It feels ultra modern. It doesn't feel old timey. At least to me, whenever I watch it, I've seen it almost like twenty times at this point. So. Mm -hmm. No, I'm I'm definitely going to force some of my friends to watch this one with me. One, because I want to watch it again, and two, because I honestly do think they'll enjoy it. Yeah, I'm so glad. Hopefully we can get a whole web of people to watch these films. That's what I want. Mm -hmm. That's my that's my evil plan. To I guess it's not the evil. numbers. What? <laughs> Just anybody on the street who's really <laughs> wanting to watch this. So I'll broadcast it from a truck. You mean like... you're, not, you're not podcasting in front of an open window, yelling at a Winn-Dixie loading bay and telling them to watch the podcast? what are you doing with your life if you're not doing that you know but uh, fun fact that you actually live right behind a wind dixie loading bay <laughs> and so uh i'm so glad you enjoyed this film it makes me so happy and uh we're gonna see older films by the way that's impossible um, the first the, camera the came out in 1939 <laughs> there's you're gonna see a film from 1928 in a couple weeks God which i'm excited for you to watch <laughs> and it's, it's you're gonna be your first silent era film you know, well, which is going to be interesting. Lajete was mostly silent, so yeah, but that was that was made in the '60s, though. Yeah, that that so was, was intentionally, intentionally silent. Okay. Yeah, this one is like we. It, this is a silent era film, or the next one, I should say. 
Um, so that's a good transition. But this is the start of the history portion of the day for Jean Renoir and Rules of the Game. But okay. first, Jean Renoir is a very famous French director and a very sort of canonized French director in cinema who made films from the all the way from the 1920s in the silent era all the way to the 1960s. But um, his most famous films that we know are sort of pre-World War II um, start most of them in the 30s. Mm-hmm. So um, using the royal we there. Oh, that we know. <laughs> yes, royal, of course we the, know. The I knew we. there were cameras back then. Well, it's a film about the bourgeoisie, so we have to use the royal. The Except royal. Precisely. Theme. And uh, his most famous films are in the 30s, like um, Grand Illusion, which is sort of seen as a sister film to Rules of the Game. It's incredible. We're definitely going to watch that at some point. Um, the Human Beast in uh, 1938. Grand Illusion was in 37. Surely um, you mean La Bataille Humaine. Surely that is what I mean. And La Marseillaise, <laughs> La Marseillaise in 1938, which is a very political film about the French Revolution. Mm. Uh, uh, the Crime of Monsieur Lange, which is in 35, and Baudu, um, Safe from Drowning in 32. So those are sort of the biggies. Good, and good. Um, after World War II, his films are very different. Um, they have a very different tone. And oh, I'm, only seen, I'm sure. I've I mean, only seen really a couple of them, but they're not very sort of well regarded in comparison to the first half of his career. Well, I'm sure it's just uh, just different sentiments of people pre and post World War II, obviously. So completely, it's yeah. no surprise that the movies would just strike a different tone. Completely, and he was actually the son of the impressionist painter Pierre Auguste Renoir, um, who's incredibly famous. And if you go to the Barnes Museum, there are like countless paintings of uh, Pierre Auguste and Renoir just everywhere. They're beautiful. So. Um, his father was an incredibly famous painter in his regard, in his medium, and Jean Renoir, Renoir really sort of established himself in another, a completely different medium. Hmm. Um, but a lot of his films do have sort of that painterly feel, which um, I could do a whole seminar on that. But uh, so he was also one of the originators or the focuses of like auteur theory, if you want to get really sort of film theory on us. Oh, I'd um, love to get real, real film theory on us. Yeah, yeah. So, hit me with that uh, so, auteur. <laughs> So the brief, the brief uh, explanation of auteur theory is that it's this idea that um, directors who have very specific styles and who make very consistent films um, should be given most of the credit for the creation of those films. Um, and that's sort of a very basic illustration of it, but it sort of gets to the point where um, it's a, I'm very divided about it because film filmmaking is inherently a collaborative effort there are so many people that contribute to making a film so auteur theory is sort of ridiculous in that light but there are directors who make very you know unique films to them and they're sort of expressing themselves as unique people they're not just sort of losing themselves within the film like Um, tarantino Oh, man, that could be a whole episode. Go listen to the most recent Synesthesia podcast to know how I feel about Quentin Tarantino because they, they they explained it perfectly, and I don't want to alienate viewers <laughs> in the beginning of our podcast career. Go listen to the new Synesthesia. They hit the nail on the head. Um, I'm not a big fan of Tarantino. That There, that's it. But, but uh, So it's a kind of a ridiculous theory, but it does, it does chime in on how cer- certain directors are unique in that way. And... Um, so let's talk about rules of the game now. So a lot of sort of the telling things about the film are, are from the re-release introduction that John Renoir did in 1961, where um, I'm very pleased, quote, I'm very pleased to talk about the rules of the game because out of all the movies I've made, it was clearly the biggest failure. 
it was panned universally in the beginning and the French people actually hated it. It was actually banned um, in the beginnings of World War II. Um, so the French people hated this film. And well, there's another story. <laughs> I mean, as one of the characters says in the film, hatred I can work with, but boredom I can't. So, exactly. I mean, it got people <laughs> yeah. feeling something. That's not and actually, Remar has a story where he saw someone at the premiere uh, unfold a newspaper, take out a matchbox, strike a match, and light the newspaper with the obvious intention of setting the room on fire. Um, I think any movie that provokes a reaction like that is controversial. Yeah, I'd uh, say that's yeah. probably a fair assessment. And this is a this is my favorite quote from him uh, about the film is that um, it was not all my intention to shock the bourgeoisie. I just wanted to make a movie, even a pleasant movie, but a pleasant movie that would at the same time function as a critique of society. I considered rotten to the core and which I still consider rotten to the core because the society continues in its rottenness and is leading us towards some fine little catastrophes, which is very prophetic considering that World War II, it was on the air of World War II. Oh, yeah, you have to wonder if maybe someone from uh, La Jete went back and, and gave him some insider <laughs> info. Oh, man, if they were in the same universe, I would, I would fucking love Oh, you that. don't know? They're actually part of the MCU. <laughs> yeah, and another important part of this film is that... Um, like T noted uh, when we were talking before this is that it has a very classical feel. It feels like almost like Shakespeare, like Midsummer Night's Dream or something. Absolutely. And he, and and he overtly said that he wanted to go back to like classical ways of, um, of art making. So away from the adaptation, like the human beast is an adaptation of a Flaubert novel. Um, and Flaubert was a very like avant-garde writer for the time. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to get back to the classic way of doing things. Yeah. And I think that's more just like my theater nerd in me coming out, um, where I see this and my mind immediately goes to, yeah, it's Midsummer Night's Dream kind of. Yeah, and I mean, the last quote that I'll share, because I don't want this to be very uh, history-heavy as well. This no, is we got to get to the meat and potatoes episode. eventually. Um, Renoir says, The portrait of this society, even though it may be a society in, society in decline, makes us love it, at least I hope, because society has at least one adva advantage. It wears no mask. Mm. Which is a really interesting quote, interesting. because I think this film is very much about masks, but at the same time, I think he's saying that they're... They're not maybe pulling off, you know, their deception so well. You no. Know what I mean? No, definitely not. Them. Yeah. So now, after this history sequence, if you listen to our last episode, which was very heavy on history, this episode is not going to be. So So uh, now let's go. <laughs> let's go into our synopsis. <laughs> T's classic synopsis. My favorite part. I always just make five bullet points and... Do my best to sum up an entire almost two-hour-long film that way. Let's go. All right. So, starting things off, uh, we have a historic flight across the Atlantic. The hero of the skies, Andre, I can't remember his last name, uh, lands, uh, lands in Paris uh, and immediately is an absolute little bitch boy because the love of his life, Christine, wasn't there to meet him, and apparently he did it all for her. Uh, meanwhile, Christine is married to Marquis Robert, which, uh, great, now we have a third one on the show, um, who is also fucking a woman named Genevieve on the DL. Um, Octave, Andre's best friend, is also everyone's best friend, uh, and gets him closer to, to Christine by, uh, having her and her husband invite him to this, uh, I suppose, hunting trip at their, uh, chateau. Uh, so 
they go on a hunt. Uh, the main maid uh, likes a poacher, who's also there. Her husband works at the at the fucking chateau, but he's a hard ass. No one likes him. Uh, Christine sees her husband kiss Genevieve. Uh, there's a play. Uh, there's bear suit. <laughs> I'm so god. Uh, yeah, Octave is uh, is a bear. Andre is a boar, and Christine don't like that. Uh, and then Andre later when he tries to uh, not run off with Christine, but almost ask her husband for her hand. Yeah, because that's the right thing to do, I, I guess. Um, Christine and Octave almost run off together because he's been in love with her all his life. This uh, is a spoiler for an 81-year-old movie. I repeat, this is a spoiler for an 81-year-old movie. And everybody's like, ah, damn, that sucks. End of story. Lovely synopsis, as always. So that probably could have been shortened up a little bit, but, uh, you know, it's a long movie with a lot of characters. And actually, on that note, I think it's important to talk about how all the characters work and relate to each other. Um, so I'm going to start off with Christine. Obviously, she's married to the Marquis. She's in love with Andre. Grew up as a childhood friend of Octave's, but she also has connections to most of the other characters in this film. Uh, her relationship with Lisette, her maid, is, uh, although one of authority, she also shares a kind of sisterly bond with her where they confide in each other. And even with Genevieve, uh, when Christine realizes that her husband's been cheating on her with, uh, with her, um, is more, more civil than it has any right to be, I suppose. Um, she treats her like sort of a rival but not even that quite um it's a little bit complicated uh the other character who i want to go over uh their connections obviously is octave because he's connected to practically everybody um like he's friendly with lisette um i suppose he doesn't interact with schumacher and marceau too much um uh, but obviously andre's best friend a close confidant of both Christine, um, Mar the Marquis, and even Genevieve to a certain point. Uh, whereas most of the other characters kind of only interact with a, a couple others. Like Lisette is mostly interacting with either Schumacher and Marceau or Christine. Andre, either the Marquis, Christine, uh, or Octave. And Genevieve almost entirely with the Marquis uh, and occasionally with Octave and Christine. Uh, Really, it's Christine and Octave who form this very complicated web uh, between most of the characters. But that's something that we'll also cover more in the analysis. And uh, I wanted this to be sort of the, the meat of the podcast, too, because I think uh, I could talk about this film for days. And I've written a lot about this film in school. Um, I took every single chance to talk about it. So... This is another chance that I'm taking full advantage of to just rant about how much I think, how insightful I think this film is. Mm -hmm. So we are going to begin with uh, maybe something obvious. We're going to begin with social codes. Mm -hmm. and, we are dealing uh, with the upper class here. There are certain <laughs> uh, social faux pas. Faux pas or uh, rules. So like rules <laughs> of the game. <laughs> you know? <laughs> If we're going to be one-to-one. -one. But uh, so 
Jean Mermoir portrays all of these characters as like behavioral chameleons where whatever social situation they're in, they are able to mold their their behavior to it perfectly. Um, and this has to do with sort of class. This has to do with gender. This has to do with uh, social standing. You know, it has to do with so many things. But um, if they're in a party, they're going to be partying to their heart's content. If they are playing ping pong, if they are um, at a dinner party, if they're, they're going to be... they're just schmoozing. Yeah, if they're going to epitomize how you're supposed to act at that time. And this sort of gets into what I want to talk about is that there's a hunting sequence in the middle of the film that stands out for many reasons, but it's a very famous sequence in the film because um, in the beginning of the film, they are so um, pleasant and they're so happy and they're so gentle with each other. But the moment that shotguns are put in their hands, they are uh, unmerciful killers where, you know, I'm not you know, making a stand against hunting or whatever like that. Nah. I'm saying that what John Renoir is saying is that at a moment's notice, if you ask them to kill and slaughter, um, they will do it to the best of their ability. Oh, yeah. You know, minutes before you had some of the upper class going like, Oh, I can't have regular salt in my food. I need sea salt in my food. Oh, yeah. what a bore. And then f- like five <laughs> minutes later, they're <laughs> knocking <laughs> pheasants out of the air. They're murdering rabbits. And they spend a lot of time on the murdered rabbits in this portion. Like, yes, it's, yeah. it's really so, throwing it in your face. And the critiques are really how Jean Renoir edits the sequence and how he frames the sequence. So he he frames a lot of the death throes of the rabbits and the birds. He like literally closes up on their bodies as they sort of twitch, which is really upsetting. Um, and then at the end of that sequence, um, now that the hunt is over and they're like, now I can act like my other self now. Mm-hmm. Um, they're looking at a squirrel through binoculars in a tree. And at one point they're looking at a duck as well. You don't get to see the duck, but they're like, oh, they're so beautiful. I can count the feathers and oh, look at that squirrel. It's so pretty. But, you know, maybe 10 minutes beforehand, they would have blasted that squirrel into a thousand pieces because that was the hunting time. But now it is post hunt time so mm-hmm. they can go back and and sort of mold themselves to this new sort of situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, that was something I think he keyed on pretty hard. Yeah. And even in the beginning, there's there's so many th- interesting pieces of that sequence, but we have a lot to talk about. So I won't rant on it too much. But um, in the beginning, uh, the people that work on in the chateau, I guess the grounds are going through the trees and hitting them with sticks. And it sounds incredibly rhythmic because they're cooing like birds and making these very like primeval animal sounds as they're um, hitting on the trees with sticks. And it's this really interesting atmospheric setup to the explosion that will come when they're all, you know, shooting the animals. It's this almost like it's this like kind of rhythmic rumbling. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it just gets progressively kind of like more and more intense until the hunt starts. Exactly. So let's talk about the camera and space. I love talking about both of those things. So the camera movement and the framing in this film are really interesting um, for a lot of different reasons. But um, for one, the camera movement is incredibly dynamic. There are a lot of tracking Mm -hmm. shots. There are a lot of really dynamic shots where um, how the camera moves and pans from left to right and tilts and all that sort of stuff um, really injects a lot of energy into each scene. Yeah, I noticed that specifically with uh, Octave and his bear suit. I think that whole scene, the camera just follows him throughout the different halls. I don't know if it's a long take, like one long cut, but... 
it seemed cool. Yeah. And and framing especially, I mean, one of my favorite moments in the film in regards to framing is um, when Marceau and the Marquis have this like private, intimate moment where they're talking about their relationship with women. Um, the camera swings over to them, and Marceau is helping the Marquis uh, tie his bow tie. And there's uh, these plants behind them that are really close, and it feels like the foreground and background are basically touching. And the way that it's framed is this really nice close-up that the end. It seems like this moment of intimacy between them, where they're they're almost in like a shelter, um, speaking about these things. Mm-hmm. And then it, it cuts away at the end of their conversation. And it's revealed they're just like talking in an open hallway. Yeah, yeah. No, they they set it up to be a much more secluded area than it's set out to be. Yeah, and uh, and and he's injecting that emotion into the scene too, just by. Um, understanding how the camera works or like how you can use the camera in different ways and um, I think how he uses space is really sort of ingenious um, because on its face all of the sets that we have in this film are incredibly simple you know nothing if you just you know parked the camera and looked at one of these rooms it's not going to blow your hair back but or hold it back or hold it back but how he captures the space um, in all of these different ways makes it really interesting. Like um, for the chase sequence out in the chateau um, with the bear suit and Schumacher running after Marceau, mm-hmm. um, there are all of these sort of doors that open in and out, and we sort of follow them through this, like what feels like a honeycomb um, of a chateau um, when it's literally just like three hallways and three rooms or something. But but the cuts, it's also about editing too. But the cuts and how each space. It, it um is captured feels really nice in this film it's hard to talk about space yeah <laughs> it feels right. i think it's important in this film to also realize that the characters um the specific characters have functions um for mm-hmm. ideas that that renoir wanted to sort of communicate to his audiences uh the characters aren't just sort of the fodder for story progression or events each one holds sort of it's to sound cheesy, but like a world of perspective within them. That's how I. That's what I think about each character. Rob, are you trying to tell me that these individual characters have more to them than just <laughs> saying that Andre's the pilot, Christine's the female lead, uh, Octave is cool? You know, what? I don't understand. What, I mean, that's what I would say, but I'm. You know, we'll we'll see how well I can explain it. So let's start with let's start with Octave. Um, who's he's cool. I think he's the best. He is the skeleton key that unlocks the inner, I guess, authentic selves of all of the characters. That's how mm-hmm. I see him. Where um, he interacts with pretty much everyone in the film, and this is true. You know, he's able to uh, interact with them as honestly as possible in each scenario, which is interesting because a lot of this film is are people either putting on masks of themselves to people. They they will they will. They will reveal only parts of themselves to certain people, you know. Maybe Octave just has one of those faces, you know. Just I think everyone is. just wants to trust him. And Octave is also played by Jean Renoir, so that's another interesting part where, like, the director of the film is playing an actor who has access to everyone's um, authentic selves. Like, and this is the example that I would use: is that um, when he's talking to Genevieve, um, 
she speaks very openly about uh, her wanting to get, you know, with the Marquis. And then the Marquis will also tell Octav openly about the affair he's having um, with his wife, who's also Octav's, like, one of his best friends. Mm. Um, But he's a confidant for everybody. And it makes you sort of think about when you're interacting with people in the world, like, what parts of you are you revealing and how open um, are you with with certain people? You know what I mean? I mean, you have to remember not to be too revealing. Right. That's how you get put on a list. Yeah. Yeah. It just makes me think that that everyone is sort of this walking puzzle box where or like a Rubik's Cube where like certain sides of you are revealed. That sounds so cliche and stupid, but like that's what this is. Rob, are you trying to tell me that that even people have more than one side (laughs) to their personality? That's what I think. And that's wild. I, I, I don't know about that. And another character I find really interesting in their function is Genevieve. I would say that Genevieve is similarly authentic in most cases. I mean, obviously, she can't go, she doesn't immediately go and tell Christine, hey, been fucking your husband. But, like, yeah. she's generally, I would say, fairly upfront. Not yeah, to the same degree as Octav, for sure, but. She's got Moxie, that girl. She's spicy. You know what I mean? She doesn't. She doesn't. She doesn't give an S, as the kids say. Not a single you know S. I mean? No cap. <laughs> yeah. Dab and that's on what it. it makes. And that's what it makes it even sadder when Octav sort of crumbles at the end. Yeah. Um. And for people who haven't seen it, there's this beautiful sequence where, um, he's talking to Christine because um, they're in love. As a, <laughs> he knew her as, a, as sort of a child because he was the apprentice of her father, who was like a famous conductor in Vienna, and um, he's he's sort of a pantomiming her father um at the beginning of the concert and he goes up to um the top of the stairway and like puts his hands up like he's conducting an orchestra and then his hands fall at his sides and he just sort of crumbles in this depression because he always wanted to have that feeling of leading an orchestra and connecting with an audience but he was never able to um and he and he sort of sees himself as a failure and it's oh my god it's so devastating that yeah. moment like yeah speaking of oops uh speaking of christine (laughs) um speaking of christine uh i think we should probably talk about just how her character fits into all this um i i'll be honest i did not like her character i i don't think you were supposed to but it's just she never seemed to know what she wanted she was involved in everything but didn't have strong feelings about any particular one i would say except for maybe octave so i think that's a lot of people's critique of the film especially when it came out they hated um her accent like she had a really strong i guess german accent when she was speaking uh, french but i think that was the point right i, I mean, mean she I was know. from I don't know austria story, but... but at the same time i don't think either of us are considered experts on the uh on <laughs> no. the french language so i didn't notice no and i think how I see Christine in the film as this, like, um, she's like a scalpel to me Explain. sometimes and other times she's very naive. Like in the beginning of the film, when, um, Octave tells her that, uh, the Andre's in love with her and all the affection that you're giving him has made him fall in love with you. And she's like, I didn't know that she seems so naive in this moment, Did but in I other moments, but other moments she knows exactly what's going on and is so, um, 
adept. Like when she um, introduces Andre when he first comes to the chateau, and she just cuts in front of everybody that might be nasty to her because of the the gossip, mm-hmm. and just comes right out with it, does the speech, and just like clears the air in this really sort of amazing monologue. And you're like, man, you really know what's going on. Oh yeah, she, and, and even the Marquis you know, says later, he's like, oh yeah, man, that was masterfully done. She's just like a whip in that moment. She's so astute. And um, even, but, and at the same time, she sort of has some of the most damaging ideas or the, the saddest ideas where she says to, um, about Andre that he's, he's very, quote, very kind and very decent, but too sincere since sin- sincere people are such bores. And she it's wants like, a oh, bad man. boy. That's man, that, that, that line fucks me up. Every time I hear that line, I'm like, oh my God, do people really think like that? And it's like, of course people think like that. You know what I mean? Like, that's the whole point of the rules is the game is to not be sincere. Um, and when you are, you're sort of... That's true. She's part of a very be, insincere class to begin with. And you have to be like a fighter pilot for people to accept you in your sincerity. You know what I mean? Like, you have to be, you have to like set a record, uh, you know, athletically or something for people to accept your sincerity, I guess, in this film, you know? Or you could just have money and social class like the Marquis who, of course, represents sort of like the bourgeoisie of, of French society or the upper class in general. Um, yeah, and he's he's very hoity-toity, but um, he's a complex character where he's obsessed with all of these toys, whether mm-hmm. it's like a mechanical warbler or it's this gigantic music box that he unveils to everybody at the chateau or it's um, this like singing doll. Um, it's all he's obsessed with sort of mechanical things and Mm -hmm. he sort of perceives people in that way too he wishes people would act as orderly as you know a warbler yeah yeah as if his problems with people could be solved as easily as replacing a screw or giving it a little wd-40 yeah And, and that sort of it points out for you know how the upper class dealt with the people around them where they gave they were, them WD-40. Where they were, yeah, that, and they were in this rarefied air where they had the leeway to treat people like that, to treat people, you know, almost like objects that f- perform a purpose, like Schumacher's the head groundsman, therefore, go and kill all the rabbits and I don't want to hear about it. Um, and Marceau, don't you dare yeah. use fences. Yeah, yeah. Marceau is like uh, his playmate um, who he can be really open with but at the same time, if he goes in out of bounds or, you know, displeases him, he just, you know, can fire him and he can go away. Um, mm-hmm. Christine is his wife who adds stability. Genevieve has the sort of romance. Like, he, I think the Marquis is supposed to look at everyone in these flattened ways, which is interesting, considering that this is a film of, like, um, character complexity, you know? Right. Right. I mean, maybe that's on purpose, having someone who doesn't see that complexity. Yeah. And I mean, I guess everything in this movie is on purpose, and that's something I'm just going to have to start wrapping my head around. And I think another part, which actually Octave talks about in the movie, is Andre as the hero. Um, Andre as the portrait of the hero is really interesting because the heroes that we have today in cinema, I just don't want to pick on Marvel movies all day. There's plenty of movies with heroes, whether it's westerns or action movies, whatever you want to do. John um, Wick, uh, The Matrix. Yeah, uh, exactly. Trying to think yeah. of other Keanu Reeves movies where he's the hero. I mean, he's the hero a lot. Um, Speed isn't he in the movie Speed? I don't he know. He is. Yeah, but uh, the hero in a Gosh, lot of I these just films. Love Keanu 
um, is glorious. They have these moments of glory, and Andre gets his moment of glory in the very beginning of the film, and for the rest of the film, he's sort of this, like, bumbling idiot. Sad boy? Uh, yeah, this bumbling sad boy. And Octave, you know, sort of says it best where he tells Christine that Andre is amazing in the air, but when he touches to the earth, he's almost, like, helpless. Um, and mm-hmm. that's the heroes of these days. And um, that's a really interesting, just in the cinematic context, when we go to a movie theater, you don't really see those heroes, you know what I mean? Yeah, you don't you don't go to the movies to see a hero who can't get anything done. Yeah. who It would who, make a funny yeah. movie. And you don't but... even get to see Andre do the flight, right? You only see the end of it. So he's just this sort of hollow label of the hero, you know? I mean, the, the alternative there would be do, to watch uh, Andre fly across the Atlantic in real time uh, in whatever time period of the set piece, if I'd be like, what, uh, yeah. 10 hours, 12 I'd, hours? I I'd have no it. idea. I'd, I'd watch it. I mean, Would and, you? I, and it's interesting that, <laughs> probably not, oh, but it's boy. interesting that, that Andre also has trouble sticking to the rules of the game in regards to social codes, um, mm. but is allowed to um, because he's this, this glorified figure, which is interesting. And, um, I also want to go to some of the smaller characters for a second. So the general is really interesting. I think we both found him really interesting in this film. Why did you find him interesting to you? I just like his quippy one-liners for the most yeah. part. Just uh, anytime somebody has something to say, it's just like, oh, yep, you don't see that every day. Not not like before, back in my day. Yeah, exactly. He has this golden age thinking mentality um, where uh, the, the like social codes of his day are are very rare these days but mm-hmm. he's also a sort of supporter of the rules of the game but not just the rules of the game he's a supporter of the sort of duplicity that the marquee um is unraveled in all the time so the marquee is just in this web of lies and sort of deception sometimes and mm-hmm. the general will go oh that's great that's what he should be doing which yeah, is interesting. Dude, that's fucking normal yeah it's interesting he just he sort of uh gives an attaboy um, when the marquee, you know, covers up a murder, <laughs> he's like, oh, uh, boy. spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't know who he's murdering, so who uh, you'll find out if you watch the film. And he's such a small character, but I feel like because this film is sort of famous for not having a main character, I, I mm-hmm. think Octave is the main character, obviously, but uh, he's sure. my favorite. But but um, I think you can make an argument that there is no main character and it's just a mass of yeah. different storylines and characters and you know when you see oceans 11 like this is what they're trying to reach for with their like ensemble cast this is what everybody's trying to reach toward is you know mm. rules of the game oh also i just realized who uh, the general reminds me of who? he's stan lee oh man he does look like stan lee a little bit yeah also and just, also like, just in... like like stan lee's uh, appearances in all the marvel films just kind of comes in for a little quippy line and then it's like all right peace yeah He's like, howdy, hey, everybody, I made this. <laughs> you know I mean? Those are always the weirdest points in those movies where the, he comes in and he's like, hey, I wrote this, didn't, didn't you know? Uh, see ya. So Marceau and Schumacher are really interesting um, as, as uh, not as foils for each other per se, but as a, as a nice little couple where, um, how, do you, how would you describe their relationship um, when we first see them? Um, their relationship reminds me of like Tom and Jerry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like constantly chasing one another, constantly at odds. Yeah, and the killing. 
Like Schumacher would love to kill Marceau if he. I think was he able even to. says as much earlier in the yeah. uh, in the movie. Yeah, that if they were in the military, um, Schumacher is the head groundsman at the chateau, and Marceau is a poacher. Um, he said if they were in the military, they would just like shoot you, um, and that's a verbatim sort of line. And then mm-hmm. in the in the middle of the film, Marceau comes on as a as a house servant at the chateau, um, and Schumacher um, is always sort of di- like. They try and reject him whenever he steps foot in the house. So now, and and also Marceau is trying to saddle up to Schumacher's uh, wife, Lisette. So now they He's hate each other for other... trying to be more than Franz. Yeah, and now they hate each other for different reasons, where before it was poacher and head groundsman, now it is like husband and suitor, sort mm-hmm. of. So it's like another layer Suitor and cuckold. Yeah, yeah, and then, but uh, and then when Schumacher and Marceau are are fired from their jobs and they're just humans, they are no longer heads head groundsman, poacher, um, husband, suitor. Uh, they're just sitting on a log and they have this beautiful conversation with each other where Schumacher is crying and Marceau offers him a cigarette and they're talking about their futures and what they're gonna do, and it's this beautiful moment of connection that gives you the hope that amidst all of sort of the labels, um, that we live under. Um, there is room for sort of authentic human connection, even amongst people who, you know, wanted to literally kill each other maybe 20 yeah. minutes beforehand. Yeah, but they had to be stripped of their titles and social, well, social class to a point, but they had to be removed from that whole scene before that authenticity could happen. Yeah, and it's it's one of the most lovely parts of the film to me. Um, so uh, uh, what we trying to do in a lot of these episodes is key into a large theme of viewing um, that might be different to what people are used to if they're just watching sort of mainstream fare. Um, a big part of this film is how um, a pleasant film speaks about really dark things. Mm. You know, most pleasant movies that you see are about love or friendship or family and all of these sort of pleasant ideas these happy ideas but this is a pleasant film that is just as pleasant as all those others i would say even more pleasant but it is about how society is imploding and is sort of has this rotten underbelly of social pressure and even sort of violent passive aggression um to it man imagine if it was shot today oh my god this is a perfect film for today (laughs) still exploding that's why this film only continues to get more relevant as the years go on like mm-hmm. were you, when you watched it were you expecting a film that's this snappy and energetic to be about these sort of dark themes you know um not exactly at first i mean i didn't really know what to think of it just based off the off the name the rules to the game mm-hmm. um but definitely as i started watching it and realized like okay so it's about like uh the bougie boys and a lot of affairs a lot of drama. Everyone's connected. Like, I mean, yeah, it's pr- it's probably going going some ways. And the fact that it reminded me of Shakespeare. I was like, Shakespeare never ends well. Yeah, and it, it's every time I watch this, I'm just like, man, I'm having such a great time. But there's this like pit in my stomach, where of course it's me thinking about how all of her behavior is modified by space and and culture, and it's about authenticity and the and the the ways that we don't connect, and it's about you know 
violence and it's about it's about it's what stokes about violence. violence and it's about class and how unfair class like class divides are it's just you know it's a roiling cauldron of of these really troubling philosophical ideas about culture but at the same time it's just a bop it is a bit of a bop i mean it was fun to watch all the way through i never felt like tired while watching yeah. it um like for for a lot of movies um i haven't walked out of a movie theater in a while but especially due to covid but i i haven't stopped watching movie in a while but i know pretty soon like if i'm tired halfway through it i'm like oh boy this is gonna be a slog did not have that feeling with rules of the game yeah and um so i think the other big philosophical or viewing discussion that i think is interesting about this film is um how you never see a character alone in this film. Uh, that is rarely, true. Rarely do you ever see hmm. someone isolated. Um, there's this there's this, this sort of atmosphere of the pack, you know? There's an right. atmosphere of constant companionship. And the only character that is really perceived as being alone is Marceau, and he's like the court jester who sort of laughs at a lot of I would of argue things, I, right? I wouldn't perceive him to be alone. I mean, he might be sort of an outsider at right. times, but yeah. I mean, he immediately ingratiates himself with the mark with the marquee and with yeah. Lisette. Yeah, um, he's so adept. And connects with Schumacher in his own special way. Yeah, I don't I don't even know if I could say a character that is really alone in this film. Jackie. And Yeah, Jackie. I hmm. guess yeah definitely actually now that i think about it yeah she is definitely maybe the loneliest character everyone dumps on her for being an intellectual yeah and that's interesting that maybe her like intellectual pursuits um alienates her from the people around her because they just want to have a good time um and like she even says to andre that you're wasting your time with my aunt and he's not uh able to have a more complex conversation about it um, which is interesting. Jackie's an interesting character in this film that I really don't I, I don't think about enough. Um, yeah, I mean, hey, same with everybody else in the film, right? Right. Maybe that's the point. You don't think about her enough when um, she is interesting, and she I don't know. I could talk about that. For, <laughs> I guess yeah, have to ruminate about that. We might have to have a sequel episode to Rules of the Game. <laughs> Just about there's Jackie. only so much we can talk about in 45 minutes. So this will be the uh, the end of the episode. <laughs> I think we should end our analysis portion there. So on our on our next episode, we're going to be talking to uh, one of my dearest friends from the NYU days. We're going to have our first illustrious guest on this podcast. Um, we're going to have Matt Cohen on the podcast. Of who the is Cohen bi- brothers? <laughs> they wish. Mm. Uh, uh, a reporter, he's a horror historian of sorts, an extreme film historian, but he's been nice to us for this episode and picked something a little more, uh, a little less extreme, I guess. So we're going to be mm. uh, watching uh, the 1948 adaptation um, film of Macbeth by right. Orson, by by the good old Orson Welles. Okay. And, um, All right. Yeah, I don't it, really know much about Orson Welles, but I do like my, me some Shakespeare, so I think this would be uh, a lot of fun. And Matt knows a lot about Orson Welles because he took a seminar with um, a scholar named Bill Simon, who um, we also had him in a class together. But And it's interesting because I met Matt for the first time, or, or I guess I connected with him for the first time, in an adaptation class. Um, taught by the illustrious scholar Robert Stamm. So this is kind of a 
kicking it old school. It's going to be a kicking it old school sort of episode. So I'm very, very excited about it. Hell yeah. All right. Uh, I'm looking forward to a little bit of horror. Uh, so, I mean, if you guys want to give it a watch before us, um, you know, uh, where can they watch it, Rob? So I watched it for free on YouTube. So Macbeth uh, 1948 Orson Welles, I guess. You just If you type that into YouTube, it'll come up. Hopefully it's available somewhere else, but that's the only place that I found it. Um, okay. unfortunately and yeah, um, so give it give it a listen uh let yeah. us know what you think about it uh we are we're on twitter we're on what is it letterkenny letterbox <laughs> letterkenny. we're on we're on i mean i'm on letterboxd i'm uh, on letterkenny uh but uh we're on letterboxd we're on twitter uh you can you know do art house drive in for both of those and split tooth media has their own twitter they have their own facebook Mm-hmm. Um, go to listen to Synesthesia. Go read all our articles. Yep. Thanks um, again to Split Tooth for letting for giving us this platform to rant. Yeah, of course. And I mean, we're a part of Split Tooth now. Now we're a part. We are in the family, as they say. Or I've been Gotta part of the family. Got to thank them. Gotta thank them. It's yeah, in the contract. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, thank you, thank you all for listening. We really appreciate it. And uh, thank you. Hopefully, you're coming along this ride, you know, with us. So. Um, you know, get more and more people into the caravan. Yeah, yeah. Pop into this drive-in with us. Yeah, and uh, have a have a great day, have a great life, and see you later. You've been listening to a Split Tooth Media presentation. You can find us on Letterboxd as Art House Drive-In and on Twitter at Art House Inn. That's right, we can't change it. Feel free to join us in our little car as we talk about films each week, give or take, probably.